Hello and welcome to The Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and each week I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Good morning, everyone. I hope you're all happy, healthy, and calm. I hope that wherever this, uh, wherever my voice reaches you, that you're having a good day, you're enjoying yourself. I was thinking a bit earlier, I went outside, and uh, obviously it's a new moon out, it's very dark, you can only see the stars, it's beautiful for stargazing, and I was just thinking to myself, you know, what, what did our ancestors see when they looked up in the sky? Did they only see stars? Did they only see comets and meteors and the planets, or did they see other things as well? It is quite an interesting topic, and I think that most people in their lives at some point, they'll look up at the sky and, and wonder what else is out there, what's on other planets, what's on other worlds. And it's definitely something that the topic of tonight's show has to do with. Uh, so tonight's episode is uh, the influence of Charles Fort on the paranormal, on life in general, um, society, and some rather famous people. So Charles Fort, uh, I've, I've learned a bit uh, more about him this week as I was reading through some research. And uh, his wife said that he was actually, you know, quite the avid uh, stargazer. You would expect it a bit from reading some of his books and some of the uh, information that he puts out there about astronomy in general. But, uh, you know, he would often stop on their walks uh, in the evenings and point out things like meteors to her, different planets and different objects in the sky. So he, he definitely had a – he was definitely ahead of his time and he definitely had a – fascination with outer space and he was often wondering uh, what other societies were out there what other races and and uh, what other uh, you know alien beings were out there could we interact with them would we interact with them so yeah it was it's quite quite a, a fascinating topic for all of us and it just goes to show back in Charles Fort's day it was no different than it is now at that time they would talk about things like life on Mars but but now we talk about life in other galaxies other dimensions but still that fascination still carries over it's one of the biggest topics uh that's that's out there you know go on something like Instagram and just go and you know type in hashtag UFO or hashtag aliens and and there's millions of posts on it so yeah, I, that, that's quite interesting to me, you know, the fact that Charles Fort, all the things that he was interested in, he, he did document them, but he also went out of his way to try and investigate and understand them as best as, as possible. So, you know, he didn't just go, oh, here's some strange things, and yeah, uh, good luck finding out more about it. So tonight's uh, episode, as I say, you know, we'll cover over some of those influences of Charles Fort's. And as a special treat at the end of the show, I'm going to read to you a handful of selected cases of Charles Fort's. Uh, it's quite difficult when you look out there on the Internet. There's no easy website to go on to to kind of find a top 10 uh, Charles Fort. Uh, cases that he identified or anything like that, but but I picked some out of the man's works. Uh, I've I've gone through the books myself, and I picked out some cases that should give you a good idea of not only the width and uh, breadth of what Charles Fort covered, but also it, it gives you some information on how he looked at science of the day, and their very skeptical uh, skeptical viewpoint on anything that they didn't agree with or that they felt uh, you know wasn't worth their time. So that will be at the end of the show. Uh, tonight also, I'm bringing back the news of the damned. So for the foreseeable future, the news of the damned will be part of the weekly segment. I'll start out each show with some of these uh, news articles. I'll read you a little bit about them, and I'll put a link in the show notes so you can go over and uh, read more about them if you would like. Uh, and this evening's, as as we're... Uh, the last ones uh, this evening's are a good spread of Fortean, uh, Fortean literature, things that Charles Fort would have been just as fascinated by as we are today. So without further ado, I'll get into that. So the first one here is from Mysterious Universe, um, mysteriousuniverse.org. And this article was uh, printed on May 15th, uh, 2020. And it's from Paul Seaburn, and the title of the article is, More People Under Quarantine or Lockdown Are Seeing Ghosts. 
So just to give you a synopsis, um, in this article, there's, it, it, there's uh, allusions to an article that was published in the New York Times about people seeing ghosts that um, they either have never seen, uh, you know, in their homes or, uh, you know, they're, they're seeing the ghosts for the first time, whereas other family members may have. So I did find this quite interesting, and uh, I don't know if it's that old saying about uh, humanity through tragic times being able to tune into things that we can't normally see or if it's just people being at home and being around ghosts whereas they may be at work or out and about. So the first one here that I'm going to cover over because they've got some actual cases in here which is which is quite interesting. Uh, the first one I'm going to cover over here it says one night, Mr. Hines woke up at about 3 a.m., thirsty for a glass of water. He said he walked into his kitchen and saw a white man in his 50s wearing a well-worn World War II-era military uniform and a cap sitting at the table. And it doesn't say what happens after that, but uh, I'm assuming he just saw the ghost and then um, the ghost disappeared. So, yeah, that's that would be something else. You know, you get up for a glass of water in the middle of the night and there's a stranger sitting there. Uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, that would that would make me a little bit um, uh, make my hair stand on end, definitely. Especially if it wasn't you know uh, a relative or someone that I'd known. So the next one here is about uh, uh, an individual named Madison Hill, who was an American living in Florence, Italy, and uh, it says that a few weeks into quarantine, uh, she woke up to find something on her nightstand that did not belong there. It was a camera lens. One she'd brought from the U.S., but lost when she moved in. She had long given up on ever finding it, but here it was. Since then, other small objects, including a set of keys, have moved to strange new places inside her apartment. So uh, this is something that is quite interesting, and it goes back you know, many, many years, many generations. You go back to uh, those of us with uh, European ancestry, the stories of brownies and gnomes and uh, fairies that if you would give them a gift that they would return things that you may have lost, or if you did things for them, you left out food for them, things that they liked, um, you know, they would look after things around your house that went missing and make sure that you found them in the end. So uh, there, there's some more in this article, as there always is, and I'll put a link in the show notes for you to read more. But yeah, that's an interesting little read. Now the next one is very Fordian. Because it's got to do with uh, people sighting things in the skies that they can't explain. So this is from Vice, and this was sent to me by one of the show's uh, biggest supporters from North Carolina. So thanks for this, uh, Mr. H. And this one is titled, UFOs over Mague Brazil Sparks Social Media Panic and Conspiracies. So this was uh, published on May 16th, 2020, and it comes from Vice.com. It says, uh, Brazilians in the municipality of Maje, just north of Rio de Janeiro, reported seeing strange, mysterious, illuminated objects in the sky Wednesday. Several videos of the objects exploded onto Reddit and Twitter, sparking incredible speculation about a crashed UFO that had been picked up widely in the Brazilian press. Now, for those of you who don't know, Brazil has been a hotbed of UFO sightings over the years. Uh, there were several in the 90s that are very famous, uh... I'm going to butcher the name, so I'm sorry, but it was something like Verania, uh UFOs about there actually being aliens wandering around at night. That was quite a fascinating case. Uh, there was also some other cases um, in the 70s, I remember, that were quite big when I read through some of the UFO books uh, that I you know, had covered, and there was one in 1957 as well um, about, uh, you know, there, I remember there being a journalist who received an envelope that had some, uh, some supposed parts of a UFO and, uh, among others. So, you know, again, for those of you who don't know, Brazil is quite a hotbed of UFOs. Uh, the 77 one that I was thinking of, that was the Colores flap. So that was, again, that was quite a big, uh, uh, a bit of sightings, you know, that went through. So anyway, um, there's also in this article, they talk about the fact that things that were posted on social media regarding the UFOs vanished. Uh, and some of some of it's explained because basically the moderator said that they were taking it down because it was hoaxes when there's no proof of it being a hoax. But, you know, as always, you be the judge and I'll make sure that I put a link in the show notes for you to have a look at. 
Now, the third one's a bit closer to home for me, but it's quite interesting, and it is something that uh, is one of the pillars of the paranormal. And this one is uh, from Australia. So this story uh, came out in the news uh, newsmail.com.au. And this one is from July 12th, 2019. And, and it's titled Strange Encounters on Aussie Roads. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with Australia or haven't been there, it is quite a large place. It's a lot larger than people generally think of. It's, it's a massive continent. The country is so large that when I was in another life uh, dealing with distributing products for farmers, we, we exported product to Australia to be delivered around the country. Now, for things to get across the country in time, so we had a five-day service promise, which meant that if you ordered on Monday, you should get it the following Monday, being five working days anywhere in the country. Now, to get from places like um, New South Wales over to areas like Broome and that in the Northwest Territory and also Western Australia, in those five days, the only way that our freight providers could actually get it there on time was to fly a, a large amount of that distance and then put it on trucks and deliver it from there. So that just gives you an idea. I mean, it is an absolute massive country. Now, like all large countries, the way that things get around in general are, you know, long haul truck drivers. And when you get out of the cities, which most like most countries, most of the cities are along the coast, um, you get into the, the central area of Australia, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, you all know the term outback. Well, once you get out on those open country roads, uh, all you see is the night sky and lots of strange things have happened there. There's been lots of strange stories about everything from the Bunyip, which is a cryptid, to UFOs and, and many other things. There are a lot of ghost stories out of Aussie. So this is a compilation of 15 stories that they've gathered from truck drivers or other people who have been out and on the roads at night. And uh, some of these are, are pretty good. So I'll read a few of them for you. The first one here is from a Peter Robinson, and it says, Going to Pilaga in the middle of the night, there was a flash of light in the cab. Looking over the passenger side was an image of a woman. It freaked the shit out of me. Now, I will not cross the Pilaga at night. I'll stop at Kunabararan or Narabi, Narabri, sorry, and wait until daylight, no matter how late I'm going. So a lot of the uh, Australian names, uh, I should have read these ahead of time, but they're Aboriginal uh, names, so they can be quite difficult to pronounce. But uh, going across the Pilaga, that's like a desert plain, so it's quite open. It, it's like uh, in the U.S., it would be like you're driving across Route 66, you know, it's quite open. You can see from horizon to horizon. Now, uh, here's another one here. So uh, this one's from Patrick Rollins, and it says, Not driving a truck, but in my ute at 2 a.m. between Juni and Wagga. I ran out of fuel, rang my girlfriend to bring mower, mower tin. So, you know, he rang his girlfriend to bring him some uh, gasoline or petrol. While I was waiting, I seen a dude walking past in a cowboy hat and a big coat. When my girlfriend arrived, I asked her if she had seen him, and she said no. There was no other traffic on the road either way from, from the time I seen him till she got to me with the fuel. I said that you need to head back to Juni, just keep the accelerator flat. That night still haunts me today, and that was 1993. So again, for those of you who don't know, uh, you don't go wandering around in the outback in Australia, especially at night because of snakes and spiders. There are all kinds of things out there who will, you know, bite you and put you in the grave. So, you know, what he's saying is if somebody wasn't walking along the road, they weren't just wandering around out, out in the... Uh, out in the outback. So again, that obviously made a big out impact to him because that happened in 93. And uh, some of the things that have happened in my life happened many years ago, and they still, you know, give me goosebumps to this day. So yeah, that's an interesting one. So there's another one here. And um, uh, this one's from Owen Weir. And it says, a Thursday morning, I passed the scene of a man hit by a truck near Robina in Queensland. He was still in pieces and no white covers, so, you know, his body was on the side of the road and they hadn't covered him over. The next night, I was on my return trip. As I passed over that section of the road, I glanced in my rearview mirror and I noticed a shadow in, this, in the shape of a man chasing the truck. I don't think my truck has ever gone so fast northbound between Rabina and Madriga, Madriba. So, um, yeah, it's it's quite an interesting one, this. And, uh, you know, you, you can say some of them are urban legends. But, um, yeah, it's it's something that I think you should read if um, you're into this sort of thing. 
And that just gives you an idea of some of the stuff that I'll read and some of the things that I enjoy reading online and that I try and soak up. Now, before I get into the impact of uh, Charles Fort on, on, on the paranormal and society in general, I just wanted to, again, uh, say thank you to everyone who's listening to this show. Uh, it, it really means a lot to me that anyone listens, and it's not something that uh, comes easy to me. Uh, because, you know, I, I, I get humbled every time I think about anybody taking their time to listen to what I, I have to say out there. So again, from the bottom of my heart, I just want to say thank you very much for taking the time to listen. Um, I've been doing a lot of work on the Instagram page. So if you follow the actual podcast, uh, and you go onto the anchor website, there are a few little buttons there, icons you can click on. You can go over and see the Facebook group page that I've set up. You can go to the Instagram page, and uh, there's a website page there that actually will take you over to Patreon if anyone would like to support the show on Patreon. There's no pressure, but if you want to go, uh, I, I think that you would enjoy some of the tier levels over there, just having a bit of a chuckle. I had a lot of fun naming them, so if you get a chance, go over and check that out. Um, so without further ado, I'm now going to get into the influence of Charles Fort on the paranormal in life in general. And then, as I say, I'm going to cover over uh, a handful of cases that he actually wrote uh, in the man's own writing. So uh, Charles Fort's works really started to get a good bit of attention again after he had passed away in 1932. In 1947, as I've said on the program before, uh, that's when Kenneth Arnold had his sighting of flying saucers near Mount Rainier, or what has been termed as flying saucers now. So that's really when people started getting back into Charles Fort, because he was really the first person who was putting out detailed uh, journals of, you know, aerial anomalies, as he called them, things in the sky, uh, airships, uh, some of those, uh, the airship sightings in 1896, 97, 98. Those are the sort of things that he covered over a lot. Strange lights in the sky, um, all sorts of phenomenon. So that drew a lot of people back to read about Charles Ford. I mean, he was really ahead of his time. He was at least 20, 30 years ahead of his time when he wrote most of his material. And Charles Fort's con conjecture on this overall was really that uh, mankind may be the property of aliens. Now, he was, again, he was really ahead of his time in this because of the fact that, uh, you know, now people talk about uh, abductions and, uh, you know, most people that believe in aliens or UFOs will believe in abductions, and that hasn't always been the case. There were lots of cases in the past where people would believe, you've seen things in the sky, that's fine, but uh, they're not hurting us, so don't worry about it. So Charles Fort was one of the first people who really popularized the idea of, uh, you know, we may be cattle, for lack of a better term. We may not actually have our own... Um, um, self-determination and that we may be owned by something else and that everything on the earth might be owned by something else. He didn't actually offer a lot of uh, new paradigms on things, but he simply stated that the current scientific paradigms of the time were insufficient to explain the universe. And uh, some people have actually, you know, use that to attack him and say, well, he wasn't a, you know, he wasn't thinking about things. He didn't have original thoughts, but he did. He had many original thoughts. He did. He just didn't offer a scientific paradigm. So he didn't, he didn't sit down and give you the connected viewpoint of the way that you should view the world. One thing that Charles believed in that um, has become quite uh, entrenched in the paranormal is that he believed uh, that there was a super sargasso sea that all missing things would go into. So for those of you who don't know what the Sargasso Sea is, in the in the days of uh, the Age of Discovery, as the saying goes, you know, back in the 14 and 1500s, when you sailed into parts of the South Atlantic, uh, there was an area with a lot of seaweed and ships could sail into this and get stuck. So, you know, you only had sail ships. They generally didn't have oars in that that far out to sea. So these ships would get stuck in the seaweed and there wasn't a lot of wind. And that's what the Sargasso Sea is. So he suggested that there's actually this cosmic Sargasso Sea, for lack of a better term, where, you know, if someone disappears off the earth, that they would go into this unknown realm and never come out again. 
So that was one of his ideas that has become uh, really well well known now in the paranormal, and a lot of other people have similar thoughts. It's kind of like that old joke about where do all the socks go? They go in the washing machine. You know, you put them in by pairs, and you end up missing socks. So yeah, it's 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 just a thought to consider that you know again this man was well ahead of his time. Now, one of his nicknames that I hadn't heard before, but um, is a very fitting nickname for him, although he wouldn't have liked it, is the Prophet of the Unexplained. Now, the reason that Charles wouldn't have liked it is he didn't like the idea of anyone being a prophet or a expert on things. He was just identifying the data. He wanted you to make your own conclusions. He did offer his own thoughts, but uh, as always, he left the facts there, you know, the cases for you to decipher. Um, so... One of the things about Charles also that a lot of people don't realize is that he coined the term teleportation. Um, and he he also was a big inspiration behind the X-Files. You would expect a bit of that. The, the program was based on the unexplained and odd. But it's actually been stated by uh, the show's creators that Charles Fort's writings uh, influenced them into making the program. Now, there's a movie here that I haven't watched myself, but it's called Magnolia. Now, apparently in Magnolia, there was a scene with uh, frogs falling from the sky. Now, that was uh, a tribute to Charles Fort, and that's one of his best-known phenomenons is just covering over aerial falls of things, frogs, fish, snails, strange rains, and it, it is it is very interesting. It's something that is definitely Fortian. It's something that you don't hear a lot of people covering over nowadays. I've heard a few things in some of the unexplained programs I've watched, but that was definitely uh, Charles Fort through and through. Now, something that I, again, I, I didn't know a lot of this until I went and did the research, but while he was living in London with his wife between 1924 and 1925, for about a six to nine month period, it seems that the forts um, had a suspected case of poltergeist. So when the house was closed, so the windows were closed, the doors were closed, so there were no breezes, no drafts, heavy pictures that had been hung on the wall would fall with a loud bang and no obvious cause. There was no one banging next door. There was there was no, uh, again, this is in 24, 25, so you, so you didn't have heavy things going through. This is downtown London, so you didn't have a train track nearby. Now, Charles, ever being the skeptic that he was, uh, he believed that they were subconsciously at fault, so that they were influencing things subconsciously in the house. And again, this just goes to show the cut of the man that he didn't, if he was a charlatan and a fraud, as, as some people have said, he wouldn't have let this go by. He would have used this as a, as a way to make money. The man was destitute. He lived in poverty almost all of his life. Now, what better adver advertisement could you have than to write into one of your books about this poltergeist case and why don't you come around my house and see this for five cents a look, you know, or something like that. So again, if the man was going out and, and perpetrating hoaxes and frauds, um, this, doesn't, this doesn't gel with that theory. Now, when Charles had gone back to New York um, in the early 30s, in 1931, a Fortean Society was founded in New York City. Now, to get him to attend the first meeting, uh, some of Charles's friends actually sent him fake telegrams to try and get him to show up. Now, when he turned up and he found out what they were doing, he refused outright. He didn't want to become the president, which they'd offered him. Uh, he said that he mistrusted all ideologies and all isms. So again, he felt that it was very dangerous if you followed a certain ideology and didn't have an open mind when you looked at these things. And he didn't want to be he didn't want to be the the person that everyone came to expecting him to have the answers and only think of things in the way that he thought. So uh, again, this just goes to show. Uh, the man would have been very hard up for money most of his life. Uh, he could have made some money doing something like this, and he didn't. For him, the data was all that mattered, you know, in this instance. Uh, that's not to say that he didn't have meetings, you know, Fortean-type meetings. So, that, so they were very informal, but, you know, he would catch up with his friends, and they would have some drinks, have something to eat, and then after dinner... They would read some strange cases that they had gathered. They would each take turns. So this was with some of his friends that I mentioned before, like Ben Hecht and Theodore Dreiser. Now, this actual Fortean society that they founded, um, most of these men were in it. So Theodore Dreiser, who was a novelist, 
Uh, he joined, Ben Hecht uh, joined, who was the playwright I mentioned in the last episode. Now, the one that I was surprised by that I hadn't heard of was Frank Lloyd Wright, so the famous architect. Uh, you know, he joined the society, as did Buckminster Fuller. Uh, it has now been renamed the International Fortean Society, and it still exists to this day. So all these many years later, the society is still there. Now, for those of you listening in the UK, uh, a very well-known publication there is the Fortean Times. Uh, I wasn't privileged to watch the old television programs of the Fortean Times, but one of my absolute favorite voices uh, is uh, Lionel Fanthorpe. Uh, he's obviously a great uh, publisher. He's written several hundred books, many of them when he was younger, you know, on science fiction. But he's also written some very good uh, books on things like uh, Oak Island, uh, Renla Chateau, uh, among, uh, among many other things. I really enjoy his style, and the man's a humble man, and I love listening to any interviews with him. Well, anyway... Um, the Fortean Times, uh, some of the most famous people who have been readers and, uh, you know, have have been subscribers and, and read the Fortean Times are Guillermo del Toro. Um, you look at some of the works that he's done, some of the things that he's directed and produced, and uh, that shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. Uh, Paul Giamatti, Jerry Garcia from The Grateful Dead. So those were all, you know, well-known readers, uh, very famous people who are interested in this subject. Now, Charles was also the first individual to make a real systematic study of unexplained phenomenon. So as I've said before, you know, he really took his time to go out, publish the data in a way that anyone could go through it. He always published his sources, which not everyone did at that time. Uh, you know, he was very meticulous about it. Now, some of the biggest uh, skeptics and even hardcore debunkers of things like this, which they'll call pseudoscience, uh, they're generally tolerant of Charles Fort because they consider him a uh, useful irritant to the scientific dogma. So they like the fact that he challenged science uh, to explain the reasons, explain the thinking, and not just you know say, well, we say so, therefore that's how it is. Now, Philip K. Dick, uh, Robert Heinlein, uh, Robert Anton Wilson, these are all writers who have also been influenced by uh, Charles Fort. Philip K. Dick, for those of you who don't know, uh, Blade Runner. Uh, Blade Runner was adapted from Charles or Philip K. Dick's works. Uh, more recently, those of you who would have seen the program uh, The Man in the High Castle, which is actually a truncation of a book that Charles, or sorry, that Philip K. Dick wrote, and I, I enjoyed a lot. Uh, so yeah, some really big minds, you know, as well as I said before, you know, Jacques Vallée, uh, J. Allen Hynek, who were really big in the UFO uh, field especially. All of these people were deeply influenced by Charles Fort. So to sum it all up, you know, the man was not super famous in his lifetime. Um, he didn't get rich. But now his name is synonymous with uh, paranormal and unexplained uh, things in general. And again, he's really one of the pillars of modern ufology and uh, paranormal, supernatural, and the unexplained in general. So now I'm going to take you through some of the actual cases uh, read directly out of the different books. So... I do apologize, I'm not going to go through the trouble of marking which of the books that they, each one of these came from, but I'm just going to read the stories basically verbatim, and then I'll give you a little bit of an explanation on each one, simply because of the fact that, again, Charles's writing style wasn't the best if you're not re used to reading it, and secondly, a lot of these terms are a bit antiquated, so uh, I may stop in between as we go, but I tried to get you a good little spread of some of the things that he covered along. So just to give you an idea of the fields he covered, uh, it's not, you know, I could spend three or four episodes just reading to you about things that he said fell from the sky, but I just tried to, to give you a bit of a spread. So the first one is, uh, I'll, I'll read it directly here, it says... In the Society Psychical Research uh, 11 189, is published a story by a painter named John Osborne living at 5 Hurst Street, Oxford, England. He said that about the last of March 1895, he was walking along a road to Wolverton 
when he heard the sounds of horses' hoofs behind him, and turning saw a man on horseback, having difficulty in controlling his horse. He scurried out of the way, and when safe, looked again. Horse and man had vanished. They, then came the conventionalization, even though it would be widely regarded as an unorthodox conventionalization. It was said that the week before, a man on horseback had been killed in this part of the road, and that the horse badly injured had been shot. Usually there is no such searching for anything further in a publication in which a conventionalization has appeared. But this instance is an exception. In the June number of the journal, there is a correction. It is said that the accident with which this disappearance had been associated had not occurred a week before, but years before, and was altogether different, having been an accident to a fanner in a hayfield. Several persons investigated, among them a magistrate who wrote that he was convinced at least that Osborne thought he had seen the figures disappear. Then why didn't I get a Wolverton newspaper and even though it would be called a mere coincidence, find noted the disappearance of somebody who had been last seen on horseback? I forget now why I did not, but I think it, it was because no Wolverton newspaper was obtainable. I haven't the item. But with all of our experience with explanations, I should have the knack myself. By this time, I think of a man on horseback who was suddenly transported, but only a few miles if, when he got back, he was a wise man on horseback, he got off the back of his horse and said nothing about this. So uh, the quite interesting bit here is that basically a man was walking along the road. Again, this is before there being uh, you know cars everywhere. He heard horse, horse hoofs behind him. He turned around and he saw someone who looked like they were struggling to control their horse and then um, said that it disappeared. Now, the first explanation was basically that this was a haunting. And that's what they were saying is that there was a story that, you know, someone had died on horseback. But there was a later correction in this same journal saying that uh, actually that was a death of someone in a farm field and it had nothing to do with the horse. So what Charles is saying here is he's just postulating that maybe this man was scooped up, whether it was, you know, running through a uh, dimensional door of some type or, you know, scooped up by a UO, et cetera, UFO, etc., and then been dropped down. And what he was saying basically is if the man vanished and then appeared here, and then when he disappeared, if he appeared back where he originally was, there's, there's a good chance that the man would just not tell anyone so that he didn't look insane. So, uh, again, that just gives you an idea of some of the oddities that he covers over. So the next one here is, uh, again, I'm just reading directly from the, from the book. It says, in the RPJ, April 24th, 1880, a correspondent, J.H. Marshall, wrote, after having read of the Lingo case. So this, is, this was a case of some things falling. Um, it says, of experiences of his in the summer of 1867. Bullets fell in every room in his house, so bullets, and at this time they would have been like musket balls. Forcefully, but not with gunshot velocity, large birdshot, broad daylight. So again, like shotgun pellets, round, and um, he said that in every, every room in his house they fell. Short intervals, and then the falls that lasted an hour or more. So more than an hour of having bullets appearing and then dropping uh, in your house. It says, but when Marshall undertook to gather them, he could never find more than a half a dozen. So there were hundreds and hundreds of these falling, but he could never find more than six. About the same time, raps were heard, which is, again, for those of you who don't know, raps are often involved with poltergeist. How bullets could enter closed rooms is no... No more mysterious than in the howness of Houdini's escape from prison cells, though according to all that was supposed to be known of physical confinements, that was impossible. In Russia, Houdini made from a prison van an escape that involved no expert knowledge nor dexterity. In matters of locks, he was put into this van, and the door was, was soldered. He appeared outside, and the police called it an unfair contest because, so to pass through the solid walls, he must have been a spirit. Anyway, this story is told by... Uh, Will Goldston, president of the Magicians Club. So again, in this case, uh, Charles Fort is talking about maybe these uh, bird shots, these these pellets 
from the gun. Maybe they disappeared somewhere and reappeared in the house. Uh, but again, what's so odd here is that you've got them falling for, as it's stated, in every room of the house for up to an hour. And yet when the man would try to collect some off the floor, he only could find ever at any one time six. So that's quite a fascinating case. So here's the third one. And it says, uh, in, in the Wernerian National History Society, 1-418, is published a paper by Dr. Barclay, who tells of the remains of an unknown monster that had been cast up by the sea in September 1808 at the Stronza, one of the Orkney Islands. We've got a hold of something now that was well observed. As fast as they could, observers got rid of this hunk, which for weeks under a summer sun had been making itself evidential. So this thing was sitting in the sun for weeks, rotting in the sun. You can imagine how bad that smelled. But the evidence came back, so it washed back to shore after they dumped it. So again, the observers got a, uh, a rope and towed it out to sea. Sultry day soon, a flop on the beach, more observations. So the second time they towed it out and it came back again. So that's three times that it washed up on shore. According to different descriptions and affidavits by inhabitants of Stronza, the remains of this creature had six arms or paws or wings. There is a suggestion of stumps of fins here, but it is said that the bulk was without the least resemblance or affinity to fish. Dr. Barclay told that in his possession was part of the mane of the monster. So we basically got a sea monster sighting of the carcass that washed up. Uh, they towed it out to sea twice. It washed back uh, both times, uh, sorry, three times. And then eventually they got rid of it and it rotted away. So this basically, they said that it had six arms or appendages of some sort. So could it be a head, a tail, and four flippers or four arms, similar to a plesiosaur? Maybe. But again, you know, this is, this is for you to decide. So here we go, is our fourth case. Unknown luminous things or beings have often been seen, sometimes close to this earth and sometimes high in the sky. It may be that some of them were living things that occasionally come from somewhere else in our existence, but that others were lights in the vessels of explorers or voyagers from somewhere beyond. From time to time, luminous objects or beings have been reported from Brown Mountain, North Carolina. They appear and then for a long time are not seen, and then they appear again. See the Literary Digest, November 7, 1925. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Brown Mountain Lights are one of the most famous paranormal things in the world. It's one of those things that's right up there. Uh, when you start looking at ghost lights, uh, Marfa, Texas and Brown Mountain are probably the two most famous I can think of. Uh, to continue reading, it says, I have other records. The, lumina the luminosities travel as, is, as with motions of their own. They are a brilliant globular form and move in the sky with a leisureness and duration that ex exclude any explanation in meteoric terms. So he's saying that it couldn't be something like a meteor or a planet because of the, the height that they're at and the speed at which they move. They move too slow. For many years, there had been talk upon the subject, and then in the year 1922, people of North Carolina, asking for a scientific investigation, were referred to the U.S. Geological Survey. A geologist was sent from Washington State to investigate these things in the sky. Or sorry, from Washington, D.C. One, one imagines, but most likely only faintly, the superiority of this geologist from Washington. He heard stories from the natives. He contrasted his own sound principles with the irresponsible gap of the denizens and went right to the investigation, scientifically. He went out to a road and he saw lights and made his report. Forty-seven of the lights that he saw were automobile headlights. Thirty-three of them were locomotive headlights. Ten were lights and houses, and ten were bushfires, totaling that up and see that efficiency can't go further. The geologist from Washington, having investigated nothing that had been sent to investigate, returned to Washington, which also, by the way, is a place where there's plenty to investigate, and I suppose that the people of North Carolina will be no wiser as to these things in the sky if some other time they appeal to the U.S. Fish Commission or the Department of Labor. 
So basically what Charles is saying is that this was a case of debunking, that uh, people complained about these lights. They wrote a letter to Washington and said, um, can you send someone out here to explain these? Uh, the man basically went out and found the explanation he wanted. He didn't actually look at the phenomenon of the lights, but he went out and he found lights. And then he wrote down, I found these car lights. I found these train lights. Here's your explanation. He basically looked down on the people, considered them uh, to be unintelligent, you know, hillbillies or uh, country folk, as the saying would go. And then he went back to Washington. And Charles is just being quite sarcastic here, saying that maybe next time, uh, if they write to the Fish Commission or the Department of Labor, they'll get just as good a help as they did by writing to uh, to this department. So, uh, yeah, that's that's quite an interesting one that he covered the Brown Mountain Lights. So here's the next one, and it says, The Daily Mail, May of 1920, that a man named Lithbridge of 4 Rowland Street, Cardiff, Wales, had in the office of the Cardiff Evening Express told a marvelous story. That story that was upon the 18th of May, about 11 p.m., while walking along a road near the Carefilly Mountains, Wales, he had seen on the grass at the side of the road a large tube-shaped construction. In it were two men in heavy fur overcoats. When they saw Mr. Lithbridge, they spoke excitedly to each other in a foreign language and sailed away. Newspaper men visited the place and found the grass trampled and found a scattering of torn newspapers and other debris. If anybody else wants to think that these foreigners were explorers from Mars or the Moon, here is a story that, of course, can be reasoned out quite or almost satisfactorily. So again... This is a case that someone saw one of these airships, uh, something similar, but this was in May of 1920. And, uh, you know, Charles Fort is saying that you could explain this by saying it was, for example, someone from Germany, you know, uh, Zeppelins, etc. So the reason that I bring this one up is just the fact that, you know, Charles Fort remained a skeptic. He didn't jump to conclusions. He would always try and find a rational reason behind this. So the next one here is... Uh, when the Titanic went down April 15, 1912, flotsam was reported months afterwards, and there were many survivors. But after the disappearance of the White Star steamship, the Neuronic, in February of 1893, two empty lifeboats, supposed to be from hers, were reported by a sea captain, and nothing more was seen. In the report by the London Board of Trade, it was considered highly improbable that the Neuronic was struck by an iceberg. It was said that this vessel was almost perfect in construction and equipment. She was a freighter, and she had 75 men aboard, and there were life belts for all. So, uh, again, this is basically a ship that disappeared. They only found two lifeboats from it. There were enough life belts on board for the whole crew, and they found no survivors, and they found no further traces of it. So, again, this is just one of those um, disappearing ships. So the next one here, it says that in 1877 in the sky, moving near the city of Brooklyn, New York, it looked upon a... Uh, it looked like a winged human form. So this is someone spotted this uh, uh, a winged human in the sky in 1877. Uh, this was obviously before there were airplanes, and um, you know there were only things like hot air balloons. And this was published in the New York Sun, September 21st, 1877. Um, here's another story below that. Zoologist, uh, July 1868, something that was seen in the sky near Capipo, Chile, a construction that carried lights and was propelled by a noisy motor or a gigantic bird with its eyes open and shining like burning coals, covered with immense scales which clashed together with a metallic sound. Now, Fort's supposition on this was, he said, I don't know what will be thought generally of our data, but in the New York Times, uh, July 6, 1873, the writer of General Notes tells of something that he considered the very worst case of delirium tremens on record. So basically the writer's saying it's the, it's the worst case of someone having a hallucination he's ever heard of. This was before my time. He copied from the Bonham, Texas Enterprise that a few days before the time of writing, a man living five or six miles from Bonham had told of having or seen something like an enormous serpent floating over his farm, and that the other men working in the fields had seen the thing and had been frightened. I suppose that equally delirious inhabitants of the backwoods of China would similarly describe one of the Earth's airships floating over their farms. I don't know... 
that this one account considered alone amounts to anything, but in, in the Times of the 7th of July, I found something else noted. A similar object had been reported from Fort Scott, Kansas, about halfway above the horizon. The form of a huge serpent, apparently perfect in form, was plainly seen. So again, here Charles is just saying that uh, he finds a rational explanation here that someone could have seen an airship. Now, again, you read some of these stories uh, back about the airship waves and that. It's uh, It really comes around to the fact that you know a lot of people conject that there were uh, scientists and inventors that were ahead of their time that were uh, you know flying these airships around the world so again here's a very early uh, story about it now here's the next one is uh, I'll keep this a bit brief but it's basically the disappearance of a Danish training ship Kobenhoven which uh, upon December 14 1928 sailed from with 50 cadets and sailors aboard from Monte Montevideo. Uh, I note that another training ship, the Atlanta British, uh, set sail early in the year 1880 with 250 cadets and sailors aboard from Bermuda and was not heard of again. Uh, upon October 3, 1902, the German bark Freya cleared from Montezino for Puentes Eris on the west coast of Mexico. I take from nature, April 25, 1907, upon the 20th of October, the ship was found at sea, partly demasted, lying on her side, nobody aboard. The anchor was still hanging free at her bow, indicating that calamity had occurred soon after the ship had left port. The date on the calendar on a wall of the captain's cabin was October 4th, so the day after it sailed. Uh, weather reports showed that there had been only light winds in this region, but upon the 5th, there had been an earthquake in Mexico. So again, uh, you know, we're talking about two ships that basically disappeared that were training ships. So they had crew on them that were training, but, you know, also seasoned uh, sailors. One was Danish, one was British, and they both disappeared without a trace. The other one is the ship that was found at sea as a derelict with no one on board. Apparently something looks like it happened the day after the ship sailed. Uh, and there were no winds to explain why the ship had disappeared. So, um, yeah, and he does a lot about these things, uh, m things disappearing at sea and also things that people have cited. Uh, so here I'm going to read a couple others real briefly. The next one is that in the month of May 1810, something appeared at Ennerdale near the border of England and Scotland and killed sheep, not devouring them, sometimes seven or eight of them in a night, but biting into the jugular vein and sucking the blood. Now that sounds like a chupacabra. Of course, this is in 1810, long before chupacabras, but it gives you an idea. It says, that's the story. The only mammal that I know of that does something like this is the vampire bat. It has to be accepted that stories of the vampire bat are not myths. Something was ravaging near Ennerdale, and the losses of sheep farmers were so serious that the whole region was aroused. It became a religious duty to hunt this marauder. Once when hunters rode past a church, out rushed the whole congregation to join them, the vicar throwing off his supplice on his way to get a horse. Milking, cutting of hay, feeding of stock were all neglected. For more details, see Chambers' journal. Upon the 12th of September, someone shot a dog in a cornfield, and with it, it is said that the dog was the marauder and that with its death, the killing of the sheep stopped. But again, no one knows that for sure. Uh, so from May to September, something was uh, wandering around killing sheep. This is after uh, wolves and such had been, uh, you know, eradicated in most of the UK. Uh, just quite an interesting story, that one. So there's one of your cryptid stories from Charles Ford. And the last one here, um, the last two I'm just going to cover over very briefly. Uh, the first one is uh, that according to oppressor Schwedenkopf, there fell in Russia, June 14, 1880, red hailstones, also blue hailstones, and gray hailstones. Um, a correspondent writes that, that he had been told by a resident of a small town in Venezuela that there, April 17, 1886, had fallen hailstones, some red, some blue, some whitish. Informant said to have been one unlikely ever to have heard of the Russian phenomenon, described to, to be as an honest, plain countryman. In July 5, 1877... A Roman correspondent is quoted to the London Times by he said that a red rain had fallen in Italy June 23, 1877, containing microscopically small particles of sand. Uh, or, according to our acceptance, any other story would have been an evil thing in the sociological sense in Italy in 1877. 
but the English correspondent from a land where terrifying red rains are uncommon does not feel the necessity, he writes, I am by no means satisfied that the rain was of sand and water. His observations are that drops of the rain left stains such as sandy water could not leave. He notes that when the water evaporated, no sand was left behind. So these are just a few cases of the strange rains that uh, Mr. Fort uh, went out of his way to document. And it's basically saying that uh, an Italian told uh, the London Times that these red drops, you know, had fallen red rain. But when the rain dried, there were uh, microscopically small particles of sand. So what they're saying is the sand itself shouldn't have colored uh, the water. And yeah, that this is just another odd anomaly. Um, they also said that uh, in December 13th, uh, 1887, there fell in conch in China, a substance like blood somewhat coagulated. That a thick, vicious red matter fell at Ulm in 1812, viscous, sorry. Uh, so... This is just Charles. Uh, he had this theory that uh, there were spaceships uh, traveling above us and that, you know, these ships would wreck or be attacked by pirates and then they would spill out some of their contents. Now, this one is very interesting. And this one says, in science, March 9th, 1888, we read of a block of limestone said to have fallen near Middleburg, Florida. It was exhibited at the Subtropical Exposition at Jacksonville. The writer in science denies that it fell from the sky. This was his reasoning. There is no limestone in the sky, therefore the limestone did not fall from the sky. So again, this is Charles poking fun at scientists and the fact that they say, well, if we say it can't happen, it can't happen. Now, this is the last one, and this is quite interesting to me. I've always been fascinated by uh, history and uh, archaeology and out-of-place artifacts. So here are some very quick uh, stories that Charles Fort uh, gathered and put in his book about some of these out-of-place artifacts. So it says here that a farmer in Cass County, Illinois, which I've been to, had picked up on his farm a bronze coin, which was sent to Professor F.F. Hilder of St. Louis, who identified it as a coin of Antiochus the fourth inscription said to be in ancient Greek characters translated as King Antiochus Ephenes illustrious the victorious sounds quite de- definite and convincing that we have had some more co- translations coming in the American pioneer are shown two faces of a copper coin with characters very much like those upon the grave creek stone which with translation will take up soon this coin is said to have been found in Connecticut in 1843. Uh, from the records of the past, it says that in early 1913, a coin said to be a Roman coin was reported as discovered in an Illinois mound. It was sent to Dr. Emerson of the Art Institute of Chicago. His opinion was that the coin of the rare mintage of Dementius Dementinus, sorry, Emperor of, of Egypt, as to its discovery in an Illinois mound. Disclaims responsibility, but what strikes me here is that a joker should not have been satisfied with an ordinary Roman coin. Where did he get a rare coin, and why was it not missed from some official collection? I have looked over numismatic journals enough to accept the whereabouts of every rare coin in anyone's possession as known to coin collectors. Seems to me nothing left but to call his uh, this another identification. That in July 1871, a letter was received from a Mr. Jacob W. Moffat of Chillicothe, Illinois, enclosing a photograph of a coin, which he said had been brought up by him while boring from a depth of 120 feet. Of course, by conventional scientific standards, such depth has some extraordinary meaning. Paleontologists, geologists, and archaeologists consider themselves reasonable in arguing ancient origin of the far buried. We only accept depth is a pseudo-standard with us. One earthquake could bury a coin of recent mintage 120 feet below the surface. According to a writer in the proceedings, the coin is uniform in thickness and has never been hammered out by savages. There are other tokens of the machine shop. But according to Professor Leslie, it is an astronomic uh, amulet. There are upon it signs of Pisces and Leo. So these are all cases of coins that have been discovered in America that have no rights being there. Uh, many of these in the 1800s and before. Uh, and again, uh, very some of these being very rare coins of known Roman emperors and the like. And why would you not realize if these were missing from your collections? I mean, these are rare coins. Not everyone has them. There might only be a handful in existence. 
So that should give you an idea of kind of the, the width and breadth uh, that Charles Fort covered, some of his ideas, and why he means so much to me and many other people who follow this, uh, this field. So uh, hopefully, folks, you haven't fallen asleep through that. I know it's a bit uh, heavy for some of you, but I do hope that it gives you a little better idea of what I'm talking about. And when I talk about 40 and Fortia and Fortiana, I hope that this, uh, you know, just gives you that idea of where it all comes from. So to wrap up the show again, um, I just want to quote Art Bell by saying that a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be closed so that whatever gray matter which does reside in may not be reached. So again, folks, have a lovely week, and uh, the next episode will be out later this week, and that one will be about the 1950 uh, Farmington UFO Armada. Have a great one.